Well, here we are, everyone. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm back talking with Lionel Burney. This is the last episode of the year. I've just had the last race of the year. I'm sitting back home. Not late enough for a beer yet, but there will be a beer later on today. Lionel, have you cracked a beer yet today? Not today, Mitch. It's only lunchtime, and I've still got to do my turbo session, so tend not to have a beer before the turbo session. I don't know what you pros do, but I don't think that's the done thing, is it? It makes it a hell of a lot more fun, and then yeah, <laughs> a hell of a lot harder too. We, um, we've got a great episode coming up. Um, it sounds a bit funny for me to say that because the episode is me answering questions, but... It is Swain Tuft asking me the questions, and I did a fantastic gravel trip with him. If you've heard the Talking Luft, that was out on Wednesday, you would know that this episode was coming. That was talking with Swaino there. Him and I were away on a trip up in the mountains in the Pyrenees, and he put the question out to me, can I interview you on your podcast? And I thought, who better to do it than Swaino? So guys, without further ado, I'm going to give you the episode. It's a long one. Hang in there, and we'll have a chat after the episode. Hope you enjoy. All right. Well, Miss Docker, I think it's been a long time in coming that we get to delve into your life because uh, for me, you're one of the more interesting characters in the Peloton. I think that's saying it uh, <laughs> pretty weakly. You're you're a massive character in the peloton. You know, we just finished up this trip in the Val d'Oran and the Ariège gravel trip, three days. Friggin' awesome! Bit of a dream route for myself, and and to take a guy like you out there was uh, yeah, it was just phenomenal. We definitely had our problems along the way, like all great trips do. But I felt like it was a really good moment for both of us in these times in our lives you know these different phases of our lives and you know as we were riding up one of these climbs I was thinking to myself um, how cool it would be to interview you you know we get to listen to you speak so much and doing this great podcast and sharing these stories about people that we would never really get to know their lives you know so you do this great service but then like I said I also feel like there's so much you are as a person and uh i think back to when i first met you you know like coming in with probably fluorescent zubaz pants and a crazy t-shirt and i'm just like who the hell is this guy you know and you made this massive impression on me and then you know we became friends and yeah you've been a really special part of my life and uh for me it's a great honor to to be able to ask you some questions so thanks buddy thanks (laughs) nice yeah hopping into it i think probably one of the things that I've never actually got into with you is like we've never really talked about much but just like you know your younger years like where you were born and we all know like Melbourne is your place but your family life like what that was like as a young Mitch Docker and and uh, you know I think you know I've met your family and I've seen the characters that they are and I feel like you're just a chip off that block and they're they're special characters so I'd be curious to hear some of the stories of how like those early years um you know what what that was for you and and those memories are yeah i guess it's a good time to talk about that because i've been thinking about the family quite a lot lately and during these uncertain times and everything you just sort of want to go back home and i think back to those old times you know we were from a pretty tight family we are still now and my brother and my sister are my my best friends and the people that i really probably only ever really speak 
can speak honestly to. I think my wife and and them, you know, someone that you just can say exactly what you mean and you know they're not going to take offense from it or if they do, you can get over that pretty quickly because you can just discuss it. And that's something I've realized in this world is something really special to have. Not a lot of people have that relationship with their siblings and something I really value. Um, I'm the youngest of three. My brother is six years older than me, Kirk, and my sister is three years older than me. So she's in the middle, Sophie. And I looked up to them so much growing up. I think in many ways I had the easy run because I was the third and I got away with murder and I was probably the mischievous one. Well, I was the mischievous one. And Kirk was the one who had to sort of pave the way for us. And, you know, Sophie being the, the girl in the middle, she sort of kept us straight on the straight and narrow, but also she was, she was great to have as well. She just provided another soft side for me at growing up. Um, and I really love that dynamic of three children in terms of a brother and a sister because there was always one moment where one was doing something, busy doing something, and the other two bonded. My sister traveled overseas, lived overseas, so it was my brother and I, and then my brother moved away and it was my sister and I, and that's just later on in life, let alone when we were younger. Um, I think that was a a massive integral part to who I am today, aside from my mum and dad, obviously. Um, Uh, Your your dad, he you were explaining some of um his history to me and it just it blew my mind this this job he had maybe (laughs) you can tell everyone what that was all about well dad my dad worked in kentucky um and this is when kentucky first started back in the 70s um and he lived over i think in europe i think it was somewhere between 15 and 18 years um and he lived in, in Holland and he also lived um, in London. But mainly what they did was back in those days, Kentucky was literally one little bus with tents in it. And everyone jumped on the bus and they did three month trips. You know, they'd do Spain, Morocco, Portugal, and off they'd go. There was one courier, dad was a courier and one bus driver. And you just get on these trips. There was no bookings.com. There was no, you know, Instagram to check in on this. And I think that was a massive part of my development without knowing it. You know, dad just had this this feel about Europe and this openness about travel and living away from home and comfortably doing that and that experience and that worldly sort of experience, not just living in Australia. Australia can be quite isolated naturally where we are. And as you live in Europe for a long time, you understand that everyone in Europe sort of can speak two or three languages. They travel to many different countries, but as an Australian, that's quite a foreign thing. Whereas dad always had, you know, a handful of words in, you know, 10, 15 languages. And I just sort of assumed that everyone had that, you know, and... Um, can I, he, yeah. I just would like to add, or just kind of get on that point. To me, I feel like it's a certain character that can only do that kind of a job. You, you're packing up, I don't know how many people would fit on these buses and going from campsite and different place in Europe. I know they had everything set up in, in, in probably a good way, but like, I just couldn't imagine it myself ever being able to do that, to be charismatic enough, to be like keeping people positive and happy and, and always kind of psyched on this trip, you know, cause three months, <laughs> that's epic in a bus with it's a bunch big. of people you don't know. And sorry, I'll just, to, to add to that as well, it's like people who can do that, they have a special skill of bringing people together. Mm-hmm. Um, and and keeping people laughing and keeping people like entertained and I feel like that is rubbed off on you certainly because mm-hmm. you know that when we rode together 
I always loved when you were at a race. You know, like I that was I knew it was going to be a good time, even if the race was absolute shit house. Like I knew we were going to have a good time, and in a good way. You know, we're serious about our work. Yeah, we're we're that's our job. We're we're going to give her, but everything else should be fun and happy. And I think that that's really rubbed off on you. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I just I guess I never really thought of it like that. Um, I've got no idea what happened on those trips in terms of how it was, and I only hear stories. But I'm assuming that's exactly how it was. It's like a, I guess you can compare it to a mini cycling trip where we're all in a confined space together for ages. We're all friends, but ultimately there's going to be glitches along the way, and there's got to be that person to sort of try and break it. Otherwise, everyone just gets all more. Oh, it's all too hard. I guess I just sort of cottoned on to that because I was thinking. Well, I want it to be a good environment for me. So I'm just going to try and make it a good environment for everyone else. So that'll create a good environment. And maybe that was dad's theory back in the day. Maybe that's the way he did it. And I know he is like that. He always comes into a room and he's, you know, growing up with that, you don't necessarily like that when your dad's the the loudest guy and talking to every person. But as I've got older, I've realized how much of a great skill that is that you can walk into a room talk to anyone and and you know maybe light up a room with a few jokes or just being just being yourself so i think it's a nice thing that has rubbed off i agree and i think it actually it is a leadership role as well like it's something because you bring people together people actually want to listen to you everyone likes you and kind of gravitates towards you and i think that's one of the first keys like in in a leadership role and i can see you know how that's how you've evolved as a rider into that captain role you know because you're just a guy that everyone is actually you're not out to prove points or like you know like have a power trip Mm. you just actually want the best for people and i think that's uh, people see that authenticity and it's really powerful and and so yeah that's fantastic so one of the other things i was uh, curious about is like your older brother like i know my my older brother really help define who I was as a as a younger person and I'm curious how that relationship was for you because I feel like you were one of those guys like that would have been in high school or even elementary you would have been ahead of the curve in many ways and that's quite often thanks to an older brother whether that's music or skateboarding or whatever you know like I, I know like a lot of the stuff I did my brother was five years older than me and it was kind of propelling me forward in a lot of different ways that friends who I had who didn't have that same situation were never exposed to, you know? That's that's exactly right. And I wasn't the most academic person out there, so it definitely wasn't that. And my brother is quite academic. It's all that other stuff that I got from him, just, just general, like you said, music, you know, style. You know, you knew how to... Well, I thought I we knew how to dress as like a year 10, 16-year-old. You don't just wear, you know, globes and, you know, baggy tracksuit pants. You just sort of be that step above that two years in front. And when guys are in two years later, they'll then, then doing that and you'd already moved on. So that was sort of nice. And I always and still do, you always still feel the younger brother, even though I'm 30, 33 now. You still feel like you've always got to go to your brother for advice, even though that maybe he can come and ask you for advice because at the end of the day you're a 33 year old man you know something but (laughs) it sort of feels weird like why would he ask me like yeah (laughs) like i'm like i'm the i ask him so 
I think on his side and how that must be to be the eldest, it's quite a burden. And as the youngest, you sort of have that free ride and you've always got the others to ask or, you know, you can always make mistakes because you're the youngest and you're just trying to work it out. That's the way I felt. And that's that's really helped me in my pursuit to do what I want to do. Um, and I'm not saying he or my sister don't do what they want to do, but I've just been able to be free and I can always call on them for advice because they, you know, and I listen, like I said at the start, they, I listen to them and I really value their opinion. And yeah, I, I, I think back to high school, that was very much the case. Um, even to the point, like I remember in year 12, I was doing my, um, the last year of high school, I was doing my final project for art and I was okay. But at the end of the day, the ideas <laughs> really came from Kirk and I was away doing junior worlds and we missed a whole lot of time and more or less Kirk and I went away locked ourselves down at this little beach house and we went all right we've got to do a whole year of year 12 in two days <laughs> let's do it and we just had this friend's beach house just covered in canvases and paint and just paper lying down on the ground i was like all right you finished that one yeah all right let's just do this one this one's gonna make that one look like you prepared it for that one and we just did a whole year's worth of year 12 in one weekend it was just so fun a sweatshop of painting yeah it was just and just thinking of ideas like yeah all right that's the inspiration for that right let's do it (laughs) so yeah it's it was great that's awesome so then you know the big question how did cycling get involved like how like tell us about that like how did like where did it start and who kind of influenced you and yeah how did that all evolve I guess I was like we were pretty sporty and Kirk was that he's got the same genetics as me I feel but he he also has that that academic as well and so he was sort of torn between those two things he was playing sport and you know pushing himself at university and media studies so he was caught up in that whereas me like I said I wasn't excelling at school I didn't necessarily love it either I was doing it and I was going to a private school but it was hard work for me but sport came easier and I loved it so I was playing cricket and and rugby and I I was pushing the limits there and trying to get in the state teams but there was something always in that that I still have really hadn't found my niche and it wasn't until the 2000 Olympics we went to the 2000 Olympics and my dad was riding but he was just doing bunch rides and things like that he wasn't racing and we went to um, the Olympics and we saw the racing on the velodrome and things really got heated up that night I didn't know anything about track racing and the crowd was really erupting the main event was the Madison and Scott McGrory and Brett Aiken won that Madison and I just remember just this feeling of the stadium and watching it and not understanding it and just going wow that was actually that was awesome that was the best event I've ever seen you know and only after that I mentioned to dad that we should try and do that and keen to try and he said I, I do know a velodrome near us the Brunswick velodrome they run a it looks like they run a free clinic on a Sunday morning let's just go down there and check it out and it was the best thing that could ever be available because it, you didn't have to commit they had you know 50 bikes there that anyone could ride put the seat up for this race put the seat down you didn't need a license went down there in runners t-shirt shorts if you wanted if you had a bit of bike gear you wore that and you just raced and it was the first time I'd ever really raced you know as a kid you sort of race your mate with around the block or on the BMX or in cross country but it's not the same yeah and this was a real race with a number on the back and on a track and you know trying to use those tactics from something I saw a couple of months earlier suddenly I was on a velodrome with the with the banking and everything fixed gear 
fix gear. Like that's I like I was shitting myself when I did it as pretty much an adult. Well, I was an adult the first time <laughs> I was on the track, so I couldn't imagine being a young guy, you know. Yeah, well, I was well, I was still sixteen at this point, so I was I was I was starting to get on in terms of cycling world, but there were kids down there at three years old, and it was just a, such a great environment there in terms of families having a barbecue no snobbiness about it everyone just sort of having fun and didn't matter if you didn't come next week you know there was no club fee or anything like that you know you, i think nice. maybe you put a bit of money in the canteen bin to pay for expenses it just sort of clicked with me and i was going okay and you know what maybe got a couple wins down there and moved up to a grade to aces and they said at the end of that you should come and do the road season uh, which is in the winter in australia um this was over the summer i was like the road season you know also opening my eyes i was like oh okay and you know we went into the clubhouse and they said they had like a quick um learn how to be a road rider one night sort of <laughs> seminar for the kids and they opened up a big box of old pros kit there that you could just choose out whatever you needed and take some stuff to keep you warm it might have been a couple of odd arm warmers and some old blown out shorts and stuff but that was just like the best piece of material i could ever get i was like oh awesome (laughs) and um in those first years i sort of did a bit of everything i was loving cycling but i was still my school had compulsory sport on saturday morning and so i was playing rugby in the morning and i always remember we'd just jump in dad's van and i'd be in the back cleaning the mud off the legs and pulling (laughs) the kit on and we'd get out to out in lansfield sort of an hour out of Melbourne and we'd start a handicap race at, you know, one thirty in the afternoon. And wow. Double days already. Double days. <laughs> it was only that transition that I started losing interest in cricket and, and rugby because I really felt with cycling, the work I put in, I saw immediately. And I love that. You know, in team sports, nothing, I still love team sports, but in team sports, sometimes someone just can't be bothered, especially in school. They're just doing it because they have to. And you'd be losing games and guys would just be on the sideline, you know, and just like... Phew, who cares when's this over was cycling all of a sudden at that age i was could see if i went training the next weekend i was better paying off already yeah yeah and, and you weren't relying on this team that like maybe half of them didn't even care about this exactly. game you know so you could hustle all you wanted but it didn't really show like you know it didn't yeah that's uh that's interesting man um so from there you know you you're you're getting out onto the road and how did this develop into riding on Draypack? Well, in the beginning, it was, yeah, it was road, track, road, track. And in Australia, well, in I'm sure around the world, that the junior world, the junior worlds comes in your in your mind. First, it's like club racing. And then, wow, there's state racing? Wow, what's that? And then you start doing that. And then you hear about nationals. And then you start hearing about this thing, junior worlds. As you're getting progressing, I was like, wow, junior worlds. It's like, if I don't make that, my, my life's over type thing. <laughs> And of course, so I commit everything to this. At this time, cycling in Australia especially, it was a bit about you've got to be in the institutes. And the institutes were great. Institutes of Sport, Victorian Institute of Sport, Australian Institute of Sport. They were supporting all the support uh, sports with financial backing, but also you'd go into this, this world where there was good coaches and all the equipment. That's what it seemed. The only problem was you had to commit at a young age, maybe year 11, drop out of school, wow. really go for it. You know, there was, that wasn't necessarily the, you had to, but more or less, you just felt like you couldn't be good enough unless you gave something else up. And I was actually pushing for that myself. I was like, well, that's just what you need. You know, that's the ticket. That's the best thing if I want to go to the junior worlds. But right at this sort of influential time, um, Michael Drapak, 
he had some two sons or three sons racing. His younger son was barely racing at that point, but his other two sons were sort of racing just below me. And we were, he's from Brunswick Club as well. Um, and he had this idea. He's, he's a wealthy man from um, Melbourne, owns a property company, but he's, his love for the sport is just so big. He was just like, well, I don't like what's happening here. I don't like what I'm seeing with Australian riders, especially coming out of this institute, coming out of the Olympics, um, and then just sort of being like, AIS is done with you, on your way, buddy. And yeah, you, you got the medal or maybe you didn't get the medal and they were just left, a lot of them becoming, you know, drunks or working in bike shops or if they're lucky, you know, so... Like a meat grinder. Yeah. Yeah, it was, just pumping them through and if it didn't work out, see you later. Exactly, we don't care. Yeah. His idea was, well, I'm just going to start my own team with emphasis on study in university or school, whatever it is. But when you get a moment, I'm going to support you on the bikes 100%. So it's not like, oh yeah, just be a crap rider but as long as you're getting your studies still a lot of pressure on performance but also pressure on schooling as well it has to be a balanced table Um, and this idea was I'm going to make a team and we're going to do it with education and you're still going to be able to come become professional it was a big idea in the day and I remember when I heard this idea I was at the under 19 um, state championships and he came up to my dad and told me I'm going to start a team that's going to go to the Tour de France. And one of the first riders I want on there is Mitch. Nice. And like, you're just like, whoa, a pro team? <laughs> Me? Like, I, I didn't know anything about pro teams. It's like, we're going to, we're going to pay him a wage. I was like, a wage? Like, what? You yeah, know? And yeah. I bought straight into it. It was, it was definitely the carrot of becoming pro. And this is a neat big thing. But also I was still enjoying my time at school. I did want to go to university. I was coming from a private school. It sort of felt like a big failure. Everyone at my school went to university. We were the one, you know, everyone was striving to get the top marks in the state. So to just drop out, not go to university, I felt like a failure in my school, in my friendship groups, in that community as well. So this just seemed like it was a beautiful fit. I could continue my cycling passion, my sporting passion, but I could also continue my academic passion. Well, academic side (laughs) that I'd worked so hard towards because I had still worked hard to try and get my year 12 um, VCA this is it just started off there we went to junior worlds and he supported three riders myself Daniel Thorson and Brad Norton and that was the very start of Drapak Porsche was called back then Porsche came on as a sponsor yeah (laughs) and we know we didn't get a car each (laughs) but we did have Porsche team cars so it's pretty sick and sort of things started rolling from there before I started making my way over to Europe. Michael supported me. I went to university and I got my degree in um, nutrition and food science before I went across to Europe. Nice. That's such a like refreshing take on what's happening currently because I think that's around the world. There's like cycling is so all-consuming that there's no time for anything else. But for someone to like kind of promote that and, and build a team around that, I think is a really fantastic idea. I'm just curious, how did that junior worlds go? How how was that experience? Because that would have been the first time traveling out of Oz for you. Is that correct? Or had you? Yeah, uh, I reckon it was. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now I think of it, I think it was my first (laughs) overseas trip. Yeah. If I could sum it up, it was a letdown from this point. That's what sort of made me in a way, if you know what I mean. Like I do. I think if I got everything I wanted there, I don't think I would have been the person I am today. To quickly go into the story of why it was a letdown for me was it was in year 12, so I had to sacrifice quite a lot to try and complete year 12. I'm missing whatever it was, two months of year 12 away, training, traveling, going away. 
And then I get there and um, I rode the first two rounds of the in team's pursuit. And in the final, they left me out because someone else was doing other events, just came back in for the final. And we ended up smoking the final. The second team wasn't even close. Germany, we came sort of in the same straight. So it was never going to be close. And in those days, only the final team got the four medals. So they brought this funny rule in for a couple of years where if you rode all the heats, but you didn't ride the final, you were never world champion. And it crushed me at the time. Jeez. Watching the boys ride, knowing they were going to win as they went off the ramp. I was in the center of the track sort of crying. The, the coach made me come and warm up with the team. You know, that'll be yeah. a team player, all that stuff. And yeah. sort of took my bike, busted out of the track and just went for a ride on the road and just sort of made sure no one saw me crying. And But I think about that and someone said to me when I got back to Australia that, hey, I thought that might have, you know, this is maybe a year or so later. I thought that experience at the Junior Worlds might have been, you know, the end of you. Like that was pretty hard and you, know, you come back as a coming to 18 years old plenty of new opportunities and options other yeah, yeah other things and i think back i was like oh for me that was i don't know it was just never an option i was just like well i wasn't good enough i need to get better uh, that's a beautiful thing um i think that's something that like really makes or breaks a person and like what you do in those moments is it can be so powerful and i know a lot for me that was a similar thing a lot of my biggest like worst you know experiences in something like a world or or whatever it drove you to try and get better Mm. you didn't take it as a as a negative you took i mean obviously it hurts at that time but then you just you've tried to figure out how you're going to get that much better and that's that's really cool um yeah so going from uh dray pack you had uh three years was it with them with dray pack yes uh well i joined them that was in 2003 when i uh, when we first spoke to michael that was the start of the team and in 2009 was my first year with skill shimano oh wow so it was quite a long time but the team trend like it was very much a development team in the first few years which then transformed into a pro connie team um and then it stayed continental for a long time after i left but yeah it was about five or six years there yeah nice and you guys were racing like the asia australasia tour is that what is that or the what do they call that the yeah i think they call it something like that we were we were doing in the beginning we we're just doing the australian series it was the first existence of teams in the australian series okay which was cool you know like we even put radios in not that we needed them just to talk to each other just to feel professional and we all had the same kit and that sort of stuff in the australian scene and that was the first step of feeling like a team yeah learning that and pretty quickly like i said we um made some steps much too fast for the team we became pro continental and came across um and raced some stuff in europe and i always remember my first experience in europe we came across and we did a couple of kermises in belgium one guy the national champion darren lapthorne he won one and i finished second or third the next one we finished second or third i thought you know europe this Not is so this is going to happen yeah. you know there's a 1.1 kermises and we're going all right these are flat races that we're used to as aussies yeah and um criterium style racing and we did another race Huller and Gurium, and i think um Stu shaw he finished up on the podium too and we're like i think we're gonna go all right here yeah next race up tour of austria <laughs> and i always remember this conversation scott mcgrory was our director and he said we're trying to become professional and um, that was a whole purpose darren and i the team was working to make us get exposed and become professional and he goes i've just spoken to alan piper who was the ds at 
Team Telecom at the point. Yeah. And he said, if your boys this week can finish top 10 in the GC, there's a real chance for them, we'll pick them up. And I just remember on a training line talking to Darren going, mate, this is going to be tough, but I reckon, <laughs> I reckon we're a chance. One of us can probably finish top 10. It's going to be hard, but yeah. after the second day, <laughs> there's teams of eight, five of our guys pulled out in the second day. <laughs> And three of us finished, me, Darren, and Stu Shaw, but yeah. we stayed last wheel the whole race. Yeah. And the, the, the organizer of the race said, Darren was Australian champion wearing this Aussie kit. And he obviously paid for us to come and everything like sure. that. It was pretty disappointing. He's like, yeah. to McGrory, can you get the Aussie champion the break or at least? We could not move from last wheel. And I just remember oh, wow. thinking, there's no way I can be pro. Yeah. No way. Yeah, I think that's... Uh you know, for a lot of guys who have to come from other parts of the world, that's a pretty regular experience. And I don't think it equates to like, you know, your physical prowess or like your power output or all these things. It's just, it's another world. And it's like, you have to spend almost another two years adapting to that. Mm. So, you know, you, you did this time in Drapec and you had these experiences in, in Europe and, and just how hard it can be. And then, how did this whole skill Shimano deal work out then um, and making this big move? I mean, for a guy that's not part of the AIS, not part of, you know, like a, a team like Mitchelton Scott is now like bringing Aussie riders over. I'm really curious to hear that whole story because for me, it's such a gigantic step for you guys to come from Australia, you know, or anyone coming from outside of Europe. It's just a massive deal and, and it's life changing. I agree, and I'm not going to say that I had it harder than the guys before me. The pros, the years before me, had it much harder, and the guys after me, I think the pathway is just slowly getting easier. So I'm going to say, like back when I was exactly what back when I was trying to come across, the jump was big, and the racing in Australia meant nothing. They had no idea what these races were, so it meant when you came to Europe. Um, and that year, following that year, I was just speaking about, we came across as a continental team. Now I think. Must have been, we must have still been pro continental. And we got to start in Qatar. And we did tour of Qatar because I was trying to, we were trying to work everything in with university. So it was early year before I went to university. So it was like, we can do tour of Qatar and tour of Langkawi, get back to first semester. And then after first semester finishes, we'll go across in the middle of the year in the university break. That's sort of how the team was, wow. did their program. And in between that, you would do Australian racing on the weekends. It was a great, it was a great program. Yeah. We just pick out the biggest races, go for them. And it, in a weird way, I think that's the best way you can do it because every time you saw the big teams, you were in the best possible shape you could be in. You gave them a little glimpse and you disappeared. Yep. Then you came back again in July, showed them again you're in form. They just think you're in that form all the time. That's right. You didn't have a month of struggling after that peak. <laughs> exactly. And that was the way I approached it. We went to Tour of Qatar. It was hard as hell, but I was able to make the front group a few days. And even able to attack the front group, which that's, was very stupid. That's saying a lot, though. Like, Qatar, you know, my experience is anyone who's making that front group of 30 or whatever on those blowout days, it's an all-out war. It's so, it, it to was, say that is it shows, like, your ability as a rider. Like, in my mind, anyone who can get through that race, make the front echelons, they have what it takes. You have the fight in you. Let's put it that way. Exactly. And it's, it's just a – it was a stupid move to do that to do that attack but I just attacked and I got caught and whatever but what it did was it just when someone's trying to commentate nothing in a race there's one guy on his own who is it my name's there and I guess that sparked the interest of Skill Shimano and we had a conversation there and 
I think more or less what happened is they just threw me into a bucket of 100 names and went, oh, okay, we'll wait till something pops up from that bucket. But I was in the bucket, which I was happy with. I had the conversation. Yeah. And from such a hard race, we went to Trilankawi and we'll, all of us were actually flying, especially me, because you come off such a really hard race for us and you go to Langkawi, it's just a different race. There's a lot of, there were half, a few pro teams there, but a lot of Asian teams. And the first day we got away and I got second in the stage and then ended up taking the yellow jersey and uh, we ended up Genting Highlands and I held on to the yellow jersey as long as I could end up finishing sixth overall in the race. That's a 25k long climb, no? Yeah, Yeah. it was really long. I mean, that's a hell of a job as well because... I still don't know how I do half of these things when I think back at it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it just was that next step to continually keep your name in the game. The next time I came across was across to Europe and it was in July and it was sort of... I just finished university, so it was like, all right, I'm all in. I was going to say from July until the the under-23 Worlds at the end of the year, my aim was to get in that team. And I knew I had whatever it was, three months in Europe to just become pro and it was more or less it I sort of ticked off consistent results in Kermises and school Shimano DS Rudy Kemner was there um it wasn't really until I um was able to get a spot in the Tour de l'Avenir in the UCI team that's another story but I was able to ride on the UCI team because I couldn't get a ride on the Australian team because it was a it was a pro Connie team and it was it was very difficult the AIS in those days made it very difficult if you weren't part of the system to be part of the system there was a bit of there was a bit of fight there. Michael was also rustling a lot of feathers with this idea and they also wanted to prove that their way was right. Sure, so there was no spots for guys outside of that kind of... There were spots, but you sort of had to be like the best that they couldn't refuse. Yeah. And I was on that cusp. I could, was, I could get in, but I just wasn't like the best guy. So I found another way around and I managed to get on this UCI team, under 23 team. And they took me to Lavenir and luckily enough, I was able to get second in a stage. Um, that's massive yeah (laughs) i just sort of just had that fighting mentality and i just wanted to race and then the australian team took me to the worlds and i really think that second in lavanier really skill shimano were like okay well this guy's serious and then the world selection just solidified the deal they said well if he's good enough for australia and he gave me the call how about we meet up the day after worlds and sign that contract and it was nice i went to worlds just like floating on a cloud i was like i've made it yeah i'm going to be pro next year that's awesome and how was that like experience of like signing that first contract like what did that feel like for you like was it weird like because obviously you probably didn't do any negotiating you probably just took whatever they had (laughs) you just psyched that you were going to be part of this team yeah i didn't think about money i just like at that point you you just think you're going to get money to survive there's no way i was doing it for money i was just wanted to finally this was the big goal yeah probably for the last three four years it suddenly just got bigger than ben Hur, and i had to make it then i was last year under 23 everything was in this and it happened yeah i went back i didn't really know what to do over the summer in terms of what to expect just did what i normally do and i especially remember waiting until january 1 to wear my new kit like that was just such a cool thing yeah i had it there i probably had it two weeks before yeah at home and trapback wouldn't have minded if i'd worn it early but it just wasn't the right thing to do it wasn't officially on that team You're professional yet. now and i was like yeah. i had to wait till january one and january one i wore that kit straight yeah. out it was I'd, I'd made it but when you said the big thing there that happened to me that first year was i was just thinking about it then what was it like how did it feel i think the big problem there was I really had just made it and I'd really 
sort of reached the top of the mountain and never thought about the next mountain. That was it. I was just like, oh, I've made it. Everything's going to be okay. And that's that's really where I did struggle for the next, for sure, the next year. I was just like, well, I've made it and I've been good enough to make it, but I've got no idea what I'm doing now. Then it opens up this whole other world and this, this that life that we know, it's that much more challenging and that much harder to get a result you know like when you're doing like you said you could go home get into top form show up at these races at top form as a bit of an unknown guy you could get some results and now here you are like the day in and day out grind of what a team like skill shimano was because what i remember from that team is you did every race in holland and belgium if you weren't busy you were traveling to another race you know like if you it was a very heavy schedule, and I can imagine that was a real adjustment for you in that first year. It was. I look back at my stats, and the most days I've ever raced is, I think, 87 days. And I did 85 in school Shimano. <laughs> first year. These are just one-day or half-week races. I didn't do Paris-Nice. I didn't, all I was doing was races like Dunkirk, which went from, like, you know, Wednesday to Sunday. That was the longest stage race I did, or maybe you know not much longer and then the rest was all one day races so when i think of that now I, to get those days now i do two grand tours and maybe you know a paris Eastern and maybe a poland and yeah you clock the days up quickly so that was a big big schedule when i think of it it's just like race recover and that was an adjustment because you were used to training like i said before you're used to training for a peak comfortably doing what you need to do hit the race recover but now it was like you had to learn how to race, recover, race, recover without training for a long time. With a ton of travel in between. Like ton of you travel. Were just always on the road, eh? And on in a car. Yeah. yeah we Crammed didn't... into the seat, seats in the back with a bunch of Swan Years crap around you. <laughs> Eating a baguette. Yeah. Yeah. It was just. It was. It was just what it was. And but for me, it was exciting because it was something new. And you're always looking at the next the next sort of a, trying to get in the next team or can I get into Roubaix? Can I ride Roubaix? And the, the season rolled on, but it definitely definitely blew my socks off because I think I just, by the end of the classics, I really was overwhelmed and, and quite, I guess, depressed. The, the shine of being pro had certainly worn off because... And it's taxing you, right? It's taxing me. I was on my own living there up in Holland. The races had defeated me. I want to say I barely finished one classic. I might have finished a couple, but I really was just a number, just a number at the back. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know how to do a lot of things. Like I'd just get caught out in the cold with the wrong gear and you just get dropped and then you didn't know where you were. So you're riding around Belgium freezing and just like, <laughs> I hate this. This yeah. is crap. And yeah. you try and you'd use every bit of energy to muster yourself up for the next race. You're like, that's okay, put it down. And again, and again. Yeah. And... um I do remember actually driving back because I used to drive with my director, Rudy Kemner. We lived in the same town. He'd pick me up and drive me to all the races, about a three-hour trip down. So I had plenty of time to talk to him. And I remember one day I just opened up to him and I said, Rudy, why why did you sign me? Like, yeah. why? And he's just looking at me like, oh, that's pretty honest. I said, I, I, I suck. <laughs> like, I can't even wow. finish these races, you know? And he's like... And he, he did sympathize with me. He's like, that's okay. Like, don't worry. It's been hard, been a hard start. And he did also slip it into, yeah, probably not exactly what we expected from you, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's things did slowly turn around. But that I always remember that first part was 
depressing and it wasn't nice and I didn't really love cycling. I didn't really want to be a pro anymore. That's for sure. It's what you don't want to tell young guys that are super keen to get a pro contract. It's like they don't want to hear that either. And it's it's I would say it's the truth for the majority of us except for like the super super talents who just kind of bypass that. Yeah. Going back, like I remember the first time I met you was in Melbourne at the on the disc there. Beautiful track. We were just training for Bendigo, I reckon. Yeah. Um, but then the, the second time your name popped up in, in my books was we were doing the Delta Tour, Zealand Tour, and you won uh, stage two. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? And I remember thinking back, ah, oh, that's that guy. Yeah. Now it's starting to all click, you know, but like... I think we didn't race a lot together in those in those days. But then, you know, you I think you had some you had some good results, and you were part of that that skill Shimano turning into what it is now, which is Sunweb. But they had a big evolution, and you were part of a sprint train there, and and I think you really learned a lot in those years. And those are like what I think are the hard yards. Anyone who can make it on a team like that, like oof, I would have a hard time trying to get a young guy from Canada to go on a team like that because I just know how hard that is. And mm-hmm. so to make it out of that system and then, you know, to get a contract with Green Edge, it's saying a lot for your perseverance and your character. So maybe let's talk a bit about that. The final years of Skill Shimano, which I think turned into a different name but then that uh the whole deal with green edge now yeah that win in delta tour was like that was the breakthrough in so many ways for me gave me so much belief because like i said i came out of that first season and really at the end of the first season i really came home and i said to a gym trainer of mine that's it i'm gonna do one more year and i'm done and i've told this story a few times but he he said to me you need to set some goals you know yeah and I literally set the goals just to sort of get him off my back. I wrote three race wins down. I was like, I, I think I wrote one race win down. He said, no, do something like you, you don't think you can do. So I wrote three down. I was like, oh, there we go. Good. Yeah. Got that done. That win especially, I, I remember the footage of There's a video after that and still around somewhere. I saw it not long ago. Because the way it happened was it was an intermediate sprint and Garmin was controlling it for Tyler Farrar. And they ripped this intermediate sprint. Swaino did. <laughs> and I was just somehow hung on the back a little bit. And the Peloton split after the sprint. And then all you guys saw that and jumped on the front. You maybe had five, six guys in the group. And just kept riding. It was only one lap to go, 20K or something. And split it. Like 15, 20 guys went away. And I was the lucky guy just to sort of get on the back. I was like, wow, sweet. I might be able to just like get good time for the GC, I thought. Yeah. As we came into that sprint, I somehow, you guys are doing a big lead out and everyone was happy for, to let you do the lead out because most of the guys weren't sprinters there. And, you know, Bob Rich was doing it, you were doing it, and I was just, I somehow got Farrar's wheel. And I was like, oh, I've got Farrar's wheel, this is good. Like, I might be able to run, like, top five or something, you yeah. know, if I can just hang on a bit of speed. And Nick, this is at a time where Farrar is, like, he's winning bunch kicks in the Tour and the Giro, like... Yeah. That's a big name. <laughs> it hey. was, I was just happy to be in his presence there. Yeah. And then next thing, Graham Brown comes up and just like starts fighting me for the wheel. And ultimately, I was just like, oh, you, you have the wheel, mate. Oh, I'm out of here, you know. So I get on Brownie's wheel. You guys did such a good lead out that no one came up the sides, whatever. It was just single file, straightforward sprint. 
Next thing, these two hit out for the sprint and I'm just like, whoa, here we go. I'm just going to try and hang onto their wheel. Next thing I'm like, are they going? So I just thought, maybe I'll try and pop around. And these two were just worried about each other. That next thing I just popped around the outside of them, took it, and the footage at the finish is just this disbelief. The, the peloton comes across the line 20 seconds later and my teammates come up and go, oh, how'd you go? Did you, did yeah. you get anything? Did you get it? You know? <laughs> I was like, well, I actually won, <laughs> believe it or not. The weird thing is you have this belief in you and the, the team then went, wow, he's got form. Send him to Route de Sud next week. Right. And I was like, oh, Route de Sud. Yeah, they, they really uh, parallel each other. Don't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like the hilliest race before the Tour de France. And I didn't want to go because I'd just flown my now wife, girlfriend over from London to just have a week together. That was my last race before the summer, Zealand. But now I'm off to bloody Route de Sud and I didn't want to be there. And I got in the break. And next thing I get over this climb and shouldn't have got back. And we're coming into the finish, 5K to go. And I'm like, well, there's only climbers here. I should probably win this. Yeah. And just that thought, I should probably win this, was the transition from the week, the two weeks before, from the whole season before. And ultimately, I took that sprint by five lengths. Yeah. And I've gone from nothing to two wins in two weeks. And it just was like, maybe I'm going to make it here. Yeah. This is cycling, eh? Yeah. And then, look, to get into what you were talking about, the, the following year, you know, suddenly I was looking with the team like, we're going to get rid of this guy. So now I've got a bit of negotiating power. Yeah. And I negotiated one more year with Skill Shimano, which Marcel Kittle then signed. And we started doing some lead out stuff with him. And that was a fantastic year too. And something I'd never done before with Skill Shimano, we were very much in those first two years about opportunity, getting the break standard pro conti exactly stuff, yeah. and i got very good at getting in the break but yeah. this was now where we're going for a win very weird i always remember coming to green edge i really found it so weird in the first few meetings talking about winning oh yeah i didn't know what we're, i was like no no we're not going to go for the break don't even do that i'm like no one like yeah no one's going for the break why would we do that and i was like oh okay well, we're going to go for the win now. And now this is how we're going to win. I was like, oh, this is new talk. Yeah. And that sort of started at the last year in Skill Shimano with Marcel. We weren't talking about going for the win, but we're talking about being in the sprints, setting him up for the sprints. And ultimately, he won a lot of races that year. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like Green Edge, that was always the talk. They're talking about a monument and it's a monument race. And it's like, how are we going to win this? this race and there's a lot of power in that and i think it's really something to be a part of a team like that and and for both of us that was a, a massive experience you know on on green edge it was now you're hopping into grand tours you know like your your first time in 2012 was your first vuelta yeah and yep. so now you're, you've been with this new team and it's aussie based team it's it's pretty much a dream scenario no like it couldn't couldn't get any better and i'd like to hear just you know, some stories about your first Vuelta and how that was for you, what that kind of experience of Grand Tour, because I think that's something that is special for everyone is, is their first Grand Tour. To talk about the team, <clears throat> it really was a dream scenario in terms of I was riding with all the guys I watched on TV, Stuart O'Grady, Robbie McEwen, Baden Cook, Brett Lancaster, Crazy. Alan Davis. These guys I watched growing up watch them do the interviews on the Tour de France. Now I'm teammates with them. 
Yeah. It just felt like it felt really weird, and I just so you just sort of got to rise to the occasion. And a massive rise to the occasion for me was that Vuelta. And I always remember, I had a crash early in the year, and I was coming back, and I wasn't too sure what I was going to do. And in July, Neil Stevens called me, and he said, "Yeah, Mitch, you doing the Vuelta?" I was like, "Whoa, you sure?" He goes, "Yep." And you're going to be leading Albie out, Alan Davis. Yeah. I was like, I hadn't really. I'd done some leadouts for Marcel, but I'm talking about starting my first Grandy. Yeah. Leading out like a prop. No offense to Marcel, but we at that point himself, he also didn't consider himself as a, a sprinter really yet. Right. And Alan was a world class sprinter, and I was like, why would he want to follow me in a in a <laughs> in a Grand Tour? So I just sort of had to. Oh, here we go. Yeah. And um, Julian Dean was there too, who. He was in front of me in the lead out and really great learning experience. But yeah, the Grand Tour. With with a very big task at hand. I mean, it's one thing to just, you know, like most Neo pros, young guys that come in and they basically just get through the race. Yeah. Right? But here you are where you have to be up on those sprint days, those key. And Albie was a guy who could get over some proper climbs. Yeah. So that meant you had to be there, you know? So that mean you had to be climbing. And so it's it's no small task in your first Grand Tour. It was the one of the best things was I had Julian Dean sitting in front of me in the bus and I learned so much from watching him in the bus and in the race and he got dropped every day last group last group last group and I remember thinking this JD is pretty crap (laughs) you know I'm up there trying to ride the group just in front of Gruppetto and eventually getting back to Gruppetto looking good in third group coming in right yeah exactly (laughs) early on in the race and then eventually I was well and truly in Gruppetto and then trying to get back to group out from behind came to the last day and i was freaking out about this last day eventually the long to cut a long story short we get through it i somehow get through this last day finishes up bola del mondo hair pit climb i'm practically crying to get to the finish because i'm so scared the group is riding away from me on a gradient you just can't keep with them no matter what you do you can't get a sit and i was thinking i'm gonna get time going get time cut you know and i hadn't seen jd all day and trav my was with me and we both sort of embrace after the finish we made it oh yeah, my god yeah. when she get back to the bus i'm check the results i'm like jd is like four minutes down or something ridiculous five minutes down. i'm like what <laughs> How's that possible? Yeah, I, that's wrong. Yeah. I'm like, what's up here, Julian? He's like, oh, well, I just, I had a go today. <laughs> so the whole time he'd been conserving, just conserving. When he didn't have to use energy, he didn't. Yeah. And it sunk in. I'm like, ah, that's how you ride a grandy. You use your energy when you need to. And obviously in the last day, he didn't have anything to save it for. So he goes, oh, I'll just do what I need to do. That was a light bulb moment in that grand tour. But it was a great first experience because there was a whole lot of young guys there. Simon Clark, Trav and Cam Meyer. Well, we had some great old guys too. JD, Wean Dog. <laughs> Wean Dog, yeah. um, It was, and we sung the song, Call Me Maybe, and Dan Jones was there. We just, and, you know, the sheriff. It was by far one of my fondest memories of my grand tour experience because... There was just so much learning that I think back to and it just hasn't... Like, there's other Grand Tours all blend into one. But there's, you know, there's a couple that stick out and that's that's definitely one of them. Yeah, you know, you've always been uh, a classics man as well. I, You know, ever since I've known you, Roubaix is... That's the race you talk about. That's the race you're excited about. Like, your eyes light up when Roubaix is spoken of. And, yeah, I would like to hear some of your stories about the evolution of, like you know being on that team now that does all those races like and you're and you're on that classics squad you know 
just the the build up and like the way you know like I, I look at you guys the the way you took that so seriously during that time you you would move up there in the north and kind of live the life of a Belgian cyclist and ride those roads and I always I really respected that because it's very hard to come from these perfect weather and perfect roads in in Spain and and throw yourself into a wet Flanders you know and and be psyched for that so yeah maybe tell us a bit about how that all evolved I know you and Derp spent a lot of time up north there I think that started way back in school Shimano and we didn't spend a lot of time there because in those days, not like the World Tour teams now, we just book out a hotel and you stay there the whole time. School Shimano was about saving money. So between each race, even if it was only two days apart, you'd go home. And I quickly realized then I, a good teammate of mine, Bert DeBacca, he lived in Belgium. Well, he's Belgian. He lived in Ghent. I started staying with him a little bit and that was just purely to cut out some of the travel and he was a good mate and he only lived... Nazareth without Hotel Nazareth was our hotel, which was 10K down the road. So I could just pop back to his and I started understanding to ride these races, you got to be a Belgie. You got to know like I'm racing back in my hometown, Melbourne, out the back of Hurstbridge, King Lake. If we were racing those roads, I know every pothole because I've trained on them. It's not about racing on the roads. It's about training on the roads, riding the roads. Because when you ride on the roads, you create different memories. It's that corner where that person almost stepped out. Oh, I remember that corner. It's that that other corner where I punctured and we we had to fix his chain. It's that other bakery there on the corner where we had a coffee. That's all memories from that whole part. And now when I'm racing there, you know exactly where you are. Because Belgium is like a spider web. You don't know where you are half the time. But if you've got these points that you can oh okay I know where we are 4k later is that left turn then we hit that climb at the top of that climb oh that's right there's a crosswind bit there it's crap so I'm going to move up if you don't know that and if you only race it it takes so long to learn because in the race you've got so much other stuff to worry about yeah you got your head down you're like oh that's right we're on the climb oh how do we even get here I don't know oh I've got to move up where's Swaino Swaino's at the back he's dropped oh what happened <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I swear it took me five years before I even started recognizing anything. Exactly. Yeah. And so that happened then. And plus I liked Belgium. Moving to Spain was great, but I missed, I did miss some things about the culture. And I sort of took that opportunity to go, well, I'm going to one, immerse myself in the culture. And two, just be up there for that little period. And three, get out of the hotel and keep fresh. Yeah, because nice. that's an element of it too, is hotel time can be good and bad. If you're on a good way, everything's great everyone's pumping your tires up you can't do anything wrong great ride yesterday oh mate you're flying oh geez you look lean whatever but as soon as you go have a bad one everyone lets you know too and you keep getting reminded of that and so sometimes it's nice to just break out of the hotel do the race thanks guys see you in a couple days i'll be back get back live a bit of normal life and then come back into the hotel fresh a little uh, yeah a little refreshment on like away from the the bubble of racing yeah 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 so you know going ahead with uh with green edge and the evolution of that team i think back to a real what i remember as a real crossroads in your life was this horrible crash in roubaix your your favorite race on the arenberg and you know i think back to that time and and oh it was i mean one of the things people don't talk about with these concussions and these these horrible crashes just that build back up and it's like yeah physically you had to you know recover from this horrible crash but it's it's that mental it's mental damage in a way that it's so hard to come back in a in a way that is like uh 
positive and excited to race again because I what I remember from really bad crashes is it was quite a long time before you took risks again. And nowadays it's all about taking risks. The entire race is taking those risks. And maybe you could just shed a little light on how that was for you in this crossroads where I feel like for you it was a very powerful time how you came back, you know? Mm. And that a very tricky time that a, like a lot of riders do face some some bad injuries, but this was a big one. Yeah, maybe tell us a bit about that. I can look back on it and maybe at the time I didn't realize, but now I realize I really took the opportunity to assess where I was at in my life and in my career. I felt for a few years there, things were just rolling on. I was still trying to be a good rider and still just following the mold, but things just happen after year after year. You get in, go to training camp, you do the classics, quick rest, get into the Giro or maybe do some other races, break in July, do the Vuelta. And next thing you know, the season's gone. And I was just like, I don't know, this crash just stopped everything. And it gave me this opportunity to just go, wow, do you really want to do this, mate? Because I sort of felt like I couldn't stop cycling before because everyone would ask me the question, what happened to you? You Why did you stop? This was just, I had this feeling like I could have done it, but I just didn't want to have these questions. This crash suddenly gave me an out if I wanted it. If I stopped cycling, I got the feeling that no one would have even questioned it. I get it. You had the big crash. I can understand why you stopped. So suddenly I saw an opportunity. If I wanted to stop, I could. But I had the question. I was able to ask myself the question. Now you've got the opportunity to stop. Do you want to? Or do you want to ride? Make a clear choice. Don't just go down this middle road of just doing it because you're just good at it. Yep. Really do it or really don't do it. And then I just took some time. I was like, okay, well, now I've got time to actually just ride. I don't have to do a training program. I don't have to get back by a certain point. And the team were really good about this. They just said, of course, just get back when you need to. So actually, I came up here to Andorra. And I just started riding around the mountains, just rolling up hills really slow. And I was like, wow, this is so good. You know, like, just love being out in the air. And that was the first step. Do I even like riding? Yeah. And the first period was, yeah, I like this. I like just riding up to, you know, Canillo or Dino Pass and just... Arcalis. <laughs> not Arcalis. <laughs> up to, um, you know, Pasadela Cast. Those things, I'm riding up these just going, I love this. Yeah. I love riding. And that was the first step. And the second step was, weirdly, I think I want to do Roubaix. Yeah, wow. It just came. It was just like this... It's like one of those... I'm sure you have it. It's one of these beasts you have to conquer. Yeah. And you like the challenge with it. It's like your wave you're trying to beat. You're trying to ride it, but it's crushing you. And sometimes you get a little bit of a ride on it. But then other times it just completely wipes you out. And you're like, God damn it, I hate you. Yeah. But when it gives you a good ride, and I've only ever had a couple good rides there. Nothing like it. It's just like, God, that was so sweet. Things clicked and you're riding the cobbles and you're following the boys. And then you get to the velodrome and you're just like, yeah. Yeah. You didn't beat me this year, but probably more times than not, I've been destroyed there. So I think once I figured out that I wanted to do Roubaix and I like riding, things just started going there. But I did definitely make a big change in the way I approached things. I changed coaches. I went with Kevin, who's still my coach now. And it was a big change for me because I was working with Ben before and there was nothing wrong with it. But I felt like if I want to go in a different direction, I really need to cut things off from my old life. Yes. And go in a new way that's what I did and just felt fresh and I felt like I was on a new a new sort of road and that's the way I want to do it yeah I feel like knowing you all these years I I noticed a massive change when you came back at that point you know in your training in the way you took the sport and I think 
it was a whole other outlook and those are some really defining moments i think like because they're the big struggles you know and i i know just a little bit coming back from injury and this and that you're really questioning what the hell am i doing you know um yeah so you know we you you had these years on green edge and then um this change to ef uh came along and i'm i'm curious to hear that transition what it was like after being with this aussie team for so long and now i felt like you were in a role and really finding your feet as what you're in my eyes the the very best at as a cyclist which is this role as a as a captain but you know it's like captain is like people think of a guy yelling at people on the road and bossing people around and telling young guys they're useless you know <laughs> and it's not that it's a guy who can it's not <laughs> <laughs> as fun as that is yeah um it's about bringing people together and like getting the best out of people and making them feel part of the group and i always felt like if you if you could do that if you could capture that element as a as a rider as an older guy make young guys feel useful make them feel like they have a place and secure man you could get a lot out of them i'm curious to hear this because uh, i i know that was a part of your story with ef and yeah i'd love to hear that evolution and that change in your life yeah i think the end of green edge was sort of it was sad for me um because the team was moving in a different direction and all of a sudden there wasn't room for me I wasn't done. I was like, well, I'm not done with cycling. Like, I don't want this to be the end of my career. And it really sort of felt like that. Um, being in a team for so long, the other teams don't really think that you're interested. You're just trying to, you know, get another offer so you can go back to Greenwich. So a lot of people thought I wasn't trying to change teams. And in the end, last minute, I sort of got this deal with EF who were in a bit of trouble that year. And last second, they got a sponsor. EF being a sponsor was Canada before. And I came on after the Canadian races and um, I only signed a one-year deal there because I wasn't too sure what the team was going to be like. I didn't know if it'd suit me. I was pretty excited about the classic squad there, but I didn't know anything else about the team. And as I got into the team, it might have even been just the first training camp, I started to realize, oh yeah, this is exactly what I needed. Yeah. I was becoming stale at Green Edge, a bit complacent, a bit, you know pigeonholed that's what you can do and i believed it and you know and suddenly i came to ef and they saw me for the rider i was yeah the rider i i was but i didn't really even see it myself i just remembered something i'd like to uh share this story because this is also your character as well so the whole thing with green edge had fell through you're doing those canadian races you you didn't have a contract at that point right no you rode those races all all you were on great form and you went all out and one of the directors was like hey like mitch didn't didn't know you were like you know because the the notion quite often is is that a guy just kind of gives up mentally right and just kind of packs it in and says ah that's it for me you know like I, or snakes the team i i'm yeah intro, i remember i was like i we're working for impy yeah and i just did the job that i always do that All i know in. i'm good at yeah. for him i didn't suddenly go well i'm going to try and run top 20 that's right and that's the important part about that story it wasn't just that you were on great form or whatever it was that you sold out completely when you were a guy who needed a contract and mm. that's something that takes a lot of character and uh, that was a story that i remember sticking out for me that was really special about you because like you said a lot of guys they just be like oh f this team yeah. like uh, I'm, I'm gonna look out for i need a result yeah. So I'm going to try and run, 
if I can even, because those races are so bloody hard. If you're in the top 20, yeah, still pretty damn good. You know, it's showing that you you care, but instead you sold out for your teammate, and that's massive. And yeah. it was yeah to think about that moment. I was working with a sports psychologist there at that point, and we were trying to because I knew probably for about three four months things were going to be done with Green Edge. And I was trying to do this transition of trying to race for myself when I got the opportunity. A couple of smaller races like um, um, Wienendahl yes. in Holland. I got an opportunity to race for myself. The team said, yeah, we're going to do the sprint for Mitch, which was for a long time I hadn't done that. Yeah. And what I started to realize there was, oh, this is really hard. I haven't raced for a win for so long that this is psychological. And I couldn't actually go the next step I could always get to the point that I'd always done to the point of leading out to helping whatever that might be whether it's 200 meters to go whether it's 5k to go where it splits I can always get there yeah. but to go the next step was psychological and why I bring this up is I was working with a, a psycho- psychologist and we were working on stuff and little trigger points in my head and one of the things for me I realized was when I just race I'm my best just race don't think about anything just follow the wheel in front think about the next corner that just that and that's what makes me so good at the classics yeah so good that <laughs> makes my classics good for me is because they're so busy you've got no time to think yeah and i remember there i was so happy with my ride it was nothing but we came up the last corner in quebec and rigoberto Oran had won the year before by attacking out of that corner and got a gap and no one could catch him. The sprinters, the lead out trains and everything. He just won. This is a wall of a climb, by the way. Like yeah. it's solid. At you this know, point. it's just climb that drag to the yeah. finish. Yeah. And I came out and he went and I was like, oh, I'm on the front. All Impy, all the guys are there in the wheel. I was like, oh no, I've got to get him back. And next thing I'm pulling on the front and he's coming back wow. and he's coming. And I, and I got him and it was, it was a nothing thing. But no, for me, it was just like... When it, you're in a team, man, that's everything at that moment because that hesitation, that gap created by a bloke who's that strong, race could be done if it's not like this. Yeah, and it was it was a nice one. I remember messaging him going, just did what I know I'm good at. I got in the position and I did it. Yeah, um, yeah. And then from there, um, to go to this team is... I got some opportunities and they reached out to me like, do you want to be this this leader, this road captain, this... Well, not necessarily that, but just a, a bit of a, a mentor, a leader in the team. And I was like, it's something that I started to realize that maybe that's something Green Edge wanted me to be, but I never was really quite ready for it until I tra- changed. And I was like, now I'm ready to take that task on. And I really grabbed it with both hands and I've loved it. It sort of gave me the next gear again. I was no longer just racing to try and do a better result. I was racing to be better, to be a better leader. I thought, what a better way to lead by example. How, who am I to suddenly tell these guys what to do if I'm just getting dropped? Yep. I've got to be better. I've got to be as, as good as I can. Obviously, I can't be in the front group on the mountains, but I've got to get over those lumps. I've got to be at the front when it's getting hard. And that made me be a better rider. And that's sort of been the, the gist of my career the last three years is that to do a better lead out, to be you know going up a hill even faster just for my own personal um, performance wasn't big enough motivation for me. It was the leadership. The, to be a better role model was the motivation yeah i think that's a that's a massive shift as well because when you're just looking out for yourself or you're just doing the the job lead out guy here and there you're kind of just looking out for yourself but just what you said you're now accountable because your words mean a lot when you were there right because you are the guy with the experience you are the guy who's going to help conduct things for younger guys and if you're never there 
and you're never showing that you're fighting to be there, they're not listening to you. Yeah. So you actually be, make your job even harder. As it, like physically, it becomes harder because you have to make it all the time, and you have to fight to be there to show you care as much. I'm definitely a much better rider because of it. You yeah. know, you won't see it in the results or whatever, but no. I get around the races ten times better than I did five years ago because I sort of have to be at every point in the race. There's no longer sit up today, wait for tomorrow. It's like you got to be there today to instruct, to do this, whatever. So just makes you an all-round better rider, I think. Yeah. So now we come to like current current times here and and this crazy season and and. Uh, yeah, I know you've discussed a bit about it before on, on some previous stuff, but just things that have happened during this COVID pandemic, uh, how cycling has maybe changed for you, the things you've learned in this in this period. Guys either have gotten a lot better or maybe not so mm. good, depending on how motivated you are to ride the trainer and all these other things. So yeah, curious to hear how you've processed all this and, and what's going on in your life now. It's been a tough period in terms of a lot of time to prepare and I think especially over the last sort of five six years since that Roubaix crash I've really wanted to dot the I's cross the T's I, you know my training's become a little bit obsessive but I think that's the way you've got to be in the world tour now at the level now with the young guys they're all doing everything so yeah it's really you can't muck around anymore so in this period of training it's been really hard because you obsess a lot but on the flip side it's been a weird transition in terms of a nice transition of understanding what life after the cycling might be like. I've got that time with the family. I haven't been racing off to a race every other week. I haven't been doing this. I've had a lot of time at home working. I'd go out for work every day and I'd come home. We've got a good routine happening. I'd be up in the morning with the kids. I'd go off for work, you know, cycling, come back and we'd have the kids in the afternoon. I was like, wow, this is, this is home life. And in a weird way, it sort of prepared me for that next step um, because I think if I'd raced a season of 80 days of racing, doing this, that and the other, and then all of a sudden in you know October, the season ends and your career ends, that's going to be a massive shock. Suddenly you've got the suitcase ready to pack and it's like, put it away. My suitcase has been put away all year. So it's been a half transition to maybe what that life will be like. And I've started to really understand, for me, the importance of what's important to me at this point in my life being away from the family australia my culture nothing against spain or andorra i love the people here but it's not my culture they're not my people and you realize very quickly how precious it is the kids growing up around you i want them back around my family i want to be with the people i love i've had a great time racing but I also want to enjoy that time with my family too. It's, you know, it's been over 10 years of away from them and sacrifice. And that is something that's really opened my eyes to it. The season, like I said, back before that Roubaix crash, maybe this period has been my Roubaix crash. Slowed me down, got me a chance to think about things again before I roll on to another season, roll on to a few more years. And next thing you know, everyone's older, everyone's not willing to do that and everyone's moved on with their life and you come back to australia and suddenly you're just that cycling guy caught in that cycling world yeah with only one option to be back in the cycling world yeah so yeah. that's really how it's opened up for me and especially the last three days with you has given me a lot of time to think and reflect on really what do i want um it's very easy to get caught up in thinking what you want you've known this for so long 
financially it's beneficial and by the end of the day you're like what do i really want what what do i really what was what's really going to make me happy sure i'm still enjoying racing and this this role this leadership role but you know that can go on forever and there's there comes a point where especially seeing my kids grow up that i want to give them the most amount of time i can and watch them grow up too yeah that's that's awesome man and i think that's such an important thing you said that transition none of us are equipped for it and to have a taste and an understanding and a jump start on that it's important at any time in your career to mm. just know how important that that is going to be in your life because it's difficult no matter how it goes it's it's <laughs> there's no easy way around it so that's good to hear um look before we wrap everything up i i just have one last question i think it's an important one because it's something i run into a lot but like what kind of advice would you say to a young guy who's trying to make his way you know on a similar path as yourself into europe at professional contract and and you know it's something i get asked all the time and i'm, I'm curious to hear your your take on it to make their way to europe or already in europe anyone any young guy who's trying to get a professional i know it's a it's a way bigger task when it comes to moving you know from another continent but just in general trying think, to get on yeah, the continental pro county team in europe i'm going to jump to straight to you if you're already pro i think the biggest thing for me and i don't regret it at all is making here like my home as much as i could committing to it and there was a transition after that skill shimano period when i moved to spain i went well this is it we're we're going to get a container so let's just buy what we need to be at home and let's start making this like home and i only had two years then it could have been over in two years but ultimately it wasn't and i think that's got a lot down to understanding what you need outside of cycling to make yourself feel happy for me that was a lot to do also outside of the team i invested in my own coach I got someone I could talk to, didn't bring all my stuff home to my wife, kept that stuff separate and home life was home life and we really just enjoyed it. I knew my wife was happy at home and when I came home, I wasn't, I was happy, as as happy as I could be. Um, That's such a great point. Yeah. Yeah, That's a big one. You just got to, and we all have different kinds of financial um, contracts and whatever we can do, but you can always make it your own, whatever that is. Um, And just living in, you know, a a house here and a place there you just commit you know you got to commit and go well this is it i've got to really and you'll notice that once you commit you feel you feel more at home you feel more comfortable and things happen when you're on that edge the whole time subconsciously you it doesn't happen yeah i couldn't agree more yeah yeah no that's great advice man uh well thanks bud thank you i really enjoyed talking to you man and um like i said yeah it's it's been an absolute pleasure racing with you all these years thanks wanna so good well mitch that was a great listen i really enjoyed uh, hearing your responses to swain's gentle probing here and there and it felt like a really appropriate way to end the season for life in the peloton because we started way back at the start of the year with me asking you the questions uh, introducing you to the cycling podcast audience i'm sure a lot of people were already familiar with who you are and your racing and your podcast uh, but i felt that swain covered some really different ground here and there and so i quite happy that the first and last episodes that we've done together this year Mitch uh, 
sort of companion pieces they bookend the year really nicely thanks mate I'm, I'm really happy that you enjoyed it it was i sent it back to my family to have a listen because it was quite nice talking about those old times and how i got back into cycling and just sitting back with swaino talking it really didn't feel like i was on a podcast it was nice to be on the other side of the pod and watch him thinking about the questions and just relaxing and having a chat so i'm really happy that you enjoyed it and i hope everyone enjoyed it out there too Life in the Peloton will be back next year. I left everyone hanging last time, but um, we've worked out that next year, um, for sure, we're going to be kicking on here at the Cycling Podcast. We are indeed, yes. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but I do have a couple of questions, Mitch. First of all, are the Australian Educational Authorities going to be on your case about uh, your brother helping you with your art coursework? Well, we've got a very similar style, so we're very hard-pressed <laughs> to find out whoever did that work. No, he, he's a big influence and... Um, Maybe one or two canvases were uh, helped painted along there. Like I said, we did a whole year's worth of work in uh, two days, so you've got to have a helping hand there. Does any of this artwork still exist? I mean, could you post uh, some examples of your handiwork, your artistry on uh, Instagram, for example? I do have it all actually in my room. I've got a typical high school room. It's all got like uh, magazine pictures like stuck on the wall. Initially, I blue tacked them on the wall. And then I started gluing them on the wall and my mum can't take them off the wall unless she literally sand, sands the wall back. And my artwork is on the wall too. So I'm going to get my mum to take a photo and um, I'll post it up on on Instagram and on the website so everyone can see. I don't know. It, 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 was, it felt really good back in the day, but let's see how it comes up in today's standards. The other little anecdote that really leapt out to me that I thought you, you told really well was just watching your more experienced teammate, Julian Dean, in races and, and thinking, how, you know, why is he he's finishing in the back group every day? And, and, and then it became obvious why, because he was conserving his energy and a, a real kind of penny drops moment for you. It really was. And I think what's really happened now is, you know, whatever that was, eight years ago, and now I'm in the Vuelta here uh, just last week. And there were some moments there where I sort of saw some similarities to Julian Dean in those times and myself sort of getting closer to those shoes, that calmness and that understanding of what what this race is and how long to go and when to use your energy. I'm definitely not as calm and as controlled as JD was back then. I'm still sometimes fighting for a group I shouldn't be, but... It was just an amazing realization. I think back to that, and maybe I've romanticized it a bit more than it was, but he just seemed to have it all worked out, and it was very simple for him to get through a Grand Tour, and it was great observing it and watching myself, in hindsight, make so many silly, silly mistakes in such a hard race. Well, we're wrapping up the year, the first year of Life in the Peloton here on the Cycling Podcast. I just wanted to say from our side that it's been an absolute pleasure to host your episodes, Mitch. I've really enjoyed listening to every single one. It wouldn't be cycling without having a sort of end of year podium. So I'm going to give you my top three, uh, not necessarily in order because it's tricky to split them. But uh, my, my podium uh, episodes are... I think that the two episodes you made um, that, that really kind of evolved the style of podcasts that, that you've been able to do uh, was real standout episodes. The first one, looking back at the Giro d'Italia team time trial in 2014 with all of your former uh, Green Edge teammates. I just thought that was just so well put together, um, not just by producer Will, who had to make the episode out of the, the huge amount of material that you gathered, but just the way you uh, 
you you've just recalled that day or that weekend with your old teammates and and built the layers of, of a story that really offered an insight into what's clearly a day that bands you guys together as a well as a band of brothers really so that was one that really uh, really made me kind of sit up and in a similar vein I thought your on the road diary from Strada Bianca and Milan San Remo the first races after lockdown really took us out of lockdown it took us back into uh, the environment of, of professional cycling and, and being out of our homes and on the road and uh, it was a real treat that to listen to so they're definitely on the podium and then the, the, there's three I've got in mind really for um, uh, that I can't really split one was uh, Dr. Kevin Sprouse and the reason for that for me personally was because I just felt like I learned a lot about a role that I thought I kind of understood but I gained a real insight into the role of the team doctors um, can't not mention the Hugh Carthy episode I mean it's already gained almost cult status for uh, you know the conversations about pies and cheese which always appeals to me and then I have to say just getting onto the podium on the final day almost uh, well kind of Theo Gagan Hart-esque in, in uh, sneaking the, the victory on the last day but I really enjoyed this one uh, where you've been answering Swain's questions just because I felt like I learned more about you as a rider and as a person so um, th- those, those three are kind of all tied for a place on the podium. Mate, I'm very honoured to hear that. Some very good episodes there. And I have to admit, you guys working with the cycling podcast has lifted the standard of life in the peloton. And those ideas of those combined episodes was a combined effort from yourself and myself being out on the road and, of course, Will Jones behind the scenes to produce that episode. Something I didn't think of or I don't even know if I could have ever done that myself. So I am definitely looking back on this year with a very favourable sort of thoughts And I'm really excited to think about next year because now we've sort of pushed the limits and it's like, where can we go with this? So I really want to thank you and everyone at the Cycling Podcast for having me on board, but also to all the listeners out there, especially all the Cycling Podcast listeners who have taken me on board, taking the Life of the Peloton crew on board as well. So guys, I really hope for the future, there's going to be some great episodes coming up and you have a nice off season. I'm going to enjoy it and I'm looking forward to cracking into next season on the bike but certainly behind the mic as well. So thanks a lot, guys. I thought you were going to say you were looking forward to cracking into a beer, but I think that goes without saying. It does. I don't need to talk about beer in every in every sentence, even though I am thinking about it in more or less every moment of the day. But it's uh, past 12 o'clock here, and I've got some housework to do, which means a beer in hand. Well, thanks ever so much uh, for everything this year, Mitch. Enjoy your off-season, and we'll catch up the other side of the new year. I'm looking forward to it, Lionel. And like I said, guys, have a great Chrissy. Have a great off-season. And won't be long until you'll be hearing some more Life in the Peloton episodes. So thanks a lot, guys. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.